something about this whole thing that just doesn't add up to me. Now that I escape, sleep, walk, or awake, those who ride these tracks know making money ain't cake. Cut into perfect slices, those who fake, they break. Take your hands off the wheel, mistakes we make when we assume one thing, but it's another altogether. Like bringing the hammer when all you needed was a feather. Like wishing for the past when today is what matters. Like trying to bake a cake without eggs in the batter. Like going long when staying short is the play. No need to blow your stack, tomorrow's another day. Cycles come and cycles go. Long-term investors gotta go with the flow. Recognize the dynamics, don't give in to excess. Ride through the uncertainty on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard and roll down the windows again because sentiment stinks across the capital markets. Stocks are coming off their worst week in a month with Friday sell-off capping three days in a row in the red for the Dow and four for the S&P 500. Spiking treasury yields kept the pressure on the stock market mixed with increasing concerns that the war in Israel could escalate across the Middle East. Fed officials were on the speaking circuit last week, headlined by Fed Chair Jay Powell, who spoke at the New York Economic Club. They all sang from the same book, signaling that additional rate hikes may not be necessary this year, especially with rising government bond yields adding to the pressure on lending conditions. The yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury topped 5% last week, the highest level since 2007, and that pushed the 30-year mortgage rate to 8% for the first time since the year 2000. We're talking about Y2K, folks, right after the dot-com bubble burst. Those higher T-bill yields are also offering yet another alternative to stocks. And as we talked about last week, the usual buyers of those treasuries are not really buying. It's the hedge funds and the mutual funds who are buying and flipping U.S. long bonds like pancakes at Sunday morning brunch. Added up and the Dow dropped 1.6% last week. The S&P slipped 2.4% and the Nasdaq composite closed down 3.2%. And that leads us straight into our big three for the week. Number one, it has not been a good year to be a small cap stock. Small caps, which are generally considered to have market caps below $2 billion, have been getting stepped on all year by a combination of rising interest rates and compressed margins. As our pal Callie Cox editorial points out, the Russell 2000, which is a benchmark of small cap stocks, is trailing the S&P 500 by 14 percentage points this year, and it's heading for its worst annual performance versus the large cap index in 25 years. These small caps carry about four times the amount of debt relative to their earnings compared to 1.4 times for the S&P 500 companies, and smaller companies also have less profit relative to the interest they have to pay on their debt. Keep in mind, 40% of small caps don't even earn a profit, so if the cost of their debt is rising given rising interest rates, it just puts more pressure on their balance sheets. We pay attention to small caps because they can be leading indicators for the overall market. Since 1980, the S&P 500 has peaked an average of three months before the economy has entered a recession. But as Callie points out, the Russell 2000 has peaked before the S&P 500 in five out of six of those cases. So if the stock market is a leading indicator, small caps are the leaders of that leading indicator, the canaries in the proverbial coal mine. The good news, or better put, the hopeful news, is that analysts expect small cap profits to get better next year, a lot better. According to facts that analysts expect Russell 2000 profits to grow at least 20% year over year each quarter of 2024. That doesn't mean it will happen, but if it does, small caps are also the first group to react to positive momentum in the economy and the stock market. Number two, the flip side of the small cap story is that the mega caps, the 50 largest stocks in the S&P 500, have had a pretty strong recovery this year. The top 50 heavyweights are up 24% year-to-date as a group, literally carrying the rest of the market with them. The S&P 500 Equal Weight Index, on the other hand, is down 1% year-to-date, and market breadth has been terrible. Maybe that's behind the bad sentiment step. 
As we said, it's been a great year for the largest 50 stocks in the S&P 500, up 24% year-to-date still, even after the recent pullback. And investors have been gravitating to those big stocks, looking for safety in numbers and strong balance sheets. Your favorite stocks, according to our sentiment surveys, are by and large these same 50 stocks, and you remain committed to them no matter how scary it gets out there. And that is kind of a double-edged sword if you look into the future. The optimists say forward 12-month S&P 500 earnings are at an all-time high, and they will be driven by the biggest companies out there. Those are great expectations, and they can turn lower in real life over the next 12 months if the economy slows and more black swans come flying in. The pessimists look at the cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio, the so-called CAPE ratio, made famous by Yale professor Robert Schiller, which uses real earnings per share, EPS, over a 10-year period to smooth out fluctuations in corporate profits that occur over different periods of the business cycle. Those folks see lower equity valuations in the future. As Fidelity's Jurian Timmer puts it, the secular bull market may have reached its twilight, and that could mean single-digit returns during the coming decade. As long-term investors, we need to ask ourselves if we would be okay with stock market returns of between 5 and 10% for the next 10 years. That changes the math, and we need to change our perspective if we believe what the CAPE ratio is telling us. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it's all about those 10 Qs. We'll get earnings reports for some of the most widely held companies out there, including Amazon, Microsoft, Meta, Coca-Cola, IBM, GM, and Exxon Mobil, just to name a few. Good results are getting rewarded for some companies like Netflix, which saw shares pop last week after reporting strong subscriber growth. But that 10-year topping 5% kind of kills the buzz around earnings season. Overall, according to FactSet, 73% of S&P 500 companies have reported a positive EPS surprise, and 66% have reported a positive revenue surprise. Guidance for the fourth quarter, when we get it, has been pretty met. Half of the companies are raising forecasts and the other half are lowering them. Lots of uncertainty. The Fed will be in a quiet period this week ahead of its next meeting on interest rates at the end of the month, but they've made their case. Probably no need to hike rates again next week, but get comfortable at these high interest rate altitudes for a while. The European Central Bank will be active this week and will announce its interest rate decision on October 26. The ECB is expected to hold rates steady after hiking rates 450 basis points since July of 2022. Here in the U.S., we'll get the advance estimate for third quarter GDP on Thursday, along with the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, the Fed's preferred inflation gauge, on Friday. And we'll also have our eyes on the ongoing stand-up strike by the UAW against the big three automakers, as well as the Hollywood actor strike. That's now more than 100 days long. Across the financial services industry, the year 2024 will be known as Peak 65, the year more Americans will turn 65 years of age than ever. 12,000 people every day will actually turn 65 next year. 65 was traditionally thought of as the retirement age. Well, we know people are working well beyond their 65th birthday for one reason or another. They either want to, or more likely, they have to. We're living longer. It's harder and harder to keep up with the cost of living, and most Americans just don't have enough savings or investments to allow them to stop earning an income. That means tough choices need to be made by families, individuals, businesses, and the financial services industry. Few people have a better perspective on this than Dan Houston. He's the president and CEO of the Principal Financial Group. It serves over 60 million customers around the world with over $600 billion dollars and assets under management. And Dan is our special guest this week on The Express. Thanks for being here. What a pleasure it is to be here. Thank you for taking the time. So good to have you here and in our office. Dan, you've been around this industry a long time. What does the word retirement mean to you today? 
I think it's all about transition. Just think about transitioning from a paycheck every single week to an environment where it's something different. Some people choose part-time, some people go back to college, but 65 today or 63 today is very different than it was 30 and 40 years ago for a couple of reasons. One, we're going to live longer than we ever did, certainly live longer than our parents did. And then secondly, the cost associated with retirement, it's significant. Uh, The cost of living is high for seniors, especially when you think about things like skilled care. So we're finding more people uh, changing careers, transitioning, uh, and uh, choosing perhaps even a different lifestyle and a different uh, profession once they've sort of fulfilled what was, I think most of us would uh, label it as a traditional work environment. What about the word wealth? That word, word gets thrown a lot around in our industry, but it's come to mean different things for different people. What does it mean to you as the CEO, but also as somebody who's kind of grown up in the industry? I, I really think you have to start with wealth being defined in really four different ways. I think the most common way we think about it is financial wealth. I think we also have to think about it in the context of your health and the wealth related to your health. I think it's important that we understand the social impact, so your social well-being and health. And then lastly, time. Time is a huge factor related to retirement. It's on those four different dimensions, which creates the, you know, what I'll refer to as three-dimensional chess for people making these tough decisions on when should I retire? When should my spouse retire? Do I want to change my location? Uh, What is the cost that I'm going to incur in retirement? What's the social network that I'm tied into? How much additional time am I going to have and how do I want to invest it? It's really serious questions, which personally, I don't believe you can wait till your retirement age to decide. These are things in your early 50s and as you mid 50s and coming into 60s should have a pretty decent battle plan on how you want to manage across those four different areas. Yeah, and that's kind of what the principle has been about for what we over do. 140 odd years. You guys have been doing this for a long time. So you get a lot of data on people. You get a lot of color on what's actually happening out there in wealth and in retirement planning across America. But we know the stats. And they're pretty alarming. People aren't prepared to retire. They're not even prepared for a financial emergency, right? How do we get people more financially prepared to that day to stop working eventually, or even just to make sure that their families are covered in case of an emergency? Yeah. So just maybe one one area to put into context here is longevity for just a second, and then I'll answer your question very directly. If we went back 30 years ago in time relative to principal's data, principal financial group, the average person retired age 63, okay? We're eligible for Social Security at 65. Today, 30 years later, and we're going to live longer, it's 63 and nine months. So the live five to six years longer, however, during that same period of time, only have earned another nine months worth of income. So I think it's imperative that people, as they approach retirement, they in their own mind have really been mindful about setting enough money aside to allow them to maintain their same lifestyle in retirement, if that's their choice. Now, if you made a conscious choice of saying, hey, I'm willing to live on half or a third of what I made before, that's a conscious decision. I hope that's a conscious decision because if you just happened into that, mistakenly not having done a good job preparing for retirement, that would be unfortunate. And I think it's the responsibility for the system. I think about the role of government, I think the role of the financial system, and I think the role of the employer in making sure that information, financial literacy is part of our high schools, it's part of our college, it's part of uh, our workplace, 
so people have a really good understanding because there's no shortage of information today. It's whether or not the form is there for you to sort of process that and prioritize funding your retirement well in advance of, of the need to do so. Amen to that. We believe that as well. The information is the education that helps you actually get a better handle on it. But that, a lot of people aren't getting access to that or choosing to have access to that. How do we incentivize people to save and invest? Do we need companies to do more? I mean, we have the 401k. This was a big transition 40, 50 years ago when companies started pretty much stopped offering pensions and the 401k came about. How do we yeah. incentivize it? So I've been with the company. I've been with Preston now for 40 years. And this retirement field has been part of my life for the last 39 years, I should say. It'll be 40 years in 2024. And what I would say to that is the shift from defined benefit to defined contribution, as you described, 401k, it was inevitable because the rest of the world had made that migration. And I think employers, for the most part, have done a yeoman's job of stepping up, having employer matches, gaining access to institutionally priced product, acting as a fiduciary to make sure the information was accurate. It was a low cost and that employees had all the features necessary, like auto-enroll and auto-escalate that allowed them to have a better chance of funding their retirement. Just recognize in this country, it's a voluntary system. And this voluntary system here in the United States, if you look at the total assets set aside for retirement, is larger than the next nine countries combined. So, and some of those are compulsory plans. So the U.S. isn't perfect, but they've done a pretty good job of working with employers to have adoption. And government has done a very good job in, you think about uh, some of the SECURE Act and uh, 1.0 and 2.0, and there will be a 3.0, allowing there to be a safe harbor for employers to adopt more friendly plan designs that encourage people in automatically enrolling and escalating. And for the most part, just take auto escalation and auto enrollment, 94% of the people keep it once it's been automatically done. And if you think about society, we're sort of a Ronco set it, forget it. People are looking for uh, automation, and this is just one example of that. Yeah, you need that nudge sometimes to get you there. But once you're there, it's kind of part of the program. But you know this well from your own inclusion studies, your own financial inclusion studies. And just by being in this business, tens of millions of Americans have no access to the traditional financial services that you offer, that we're talking about here at Investopedia. They feel like they've been left out of this conversation entirely. And when you say, how come you're not ready for retirement? How come you haven't saved enough for an emergency? They're like, I'm just barely getting by. How do we help them? Yeah. So there's two different issues here. One, one is whether or not you have a living wage that would allow you to save for uh, retirement, even if you could. The other is there are people that have an income that is more than adequate, but they've chosen not to participate either as an individual or through the workplace. So maybe three different cohorts for us to debate here. For those people in the workforce that have the means to be able to retire, that's where the automatic features have been probably the most helpful for those people working with employers that have chosen to participate, but on a level that's high enough to fund for retirement, auto escalation. If I look at the bottom quartile, bottom decile of individuals in this country that aren't earning a living wage, you're 100% accurate. Social security for those individuals is likely to replace anywhere from 50 to 60% of their pre-retirement income. There is not a shortage of individual products. There are more than enough products. The information's out there and it's readily free, but the country has to continue to find ways to allow individuals to retire with dignity. And again, working between the private and the public sector, we have to continue to work in that direction.
You've been a principal since 1984, right? And that time it went from just offering insurance to becoming a full-service planning and financial and investment firm. What have you learned about our relationship with money, not just here in America, but around the world? Because you guys have gone global. Things have changed. Yeah, we do business in 80 different countries and under custody, about a trillion five uh, and assets under management, 675 billion. And the one thing I've learned is it's no different than the U.S., is it is in Brazil or Chile or China or Hong Kong or Singapore, individuals want to have a retirement defined by means that allow them to retire with dignity. What principal wants to make sure we're doing constantly is creating more and more access points. Access is created by having the right products, the right solutions, the right financial information, and the inclusion of all of the society as we, as we know it. And that's true everywhere around the world. Now, the other thing I would tell you is the products have increasingly become more and more competitive in terms of the cost, the basis points usually associated with asset management, even the cost that employers incur by putting these plans in place. One, because of size and scale and technology has been our friend. So to your point earlier, what have you learned in some of the countries like Latin America and Asia where they've adopted online and uh, automatic bill pay and using telephony is a, is a really a, the primary which, way in which they conduct financial transactions. That actually has allowed them to have a little bit better improvement in growth, both in terms of financial literacy, as well as access to important financial services product, including online bill pay, access to credit. You know, I think about touch and go in Malaysia. Not only does it allow you to pay for your tolls as you navigate the country, but it also allows you to pay your normal bills. So you've been in this industry a long time. You've said it yourself and you've seen a lot of changes. What does it look like to you in the next five to 10 years? How does financial services evolve? Are we having more technological touch points, more automation, or is the advisor going to somehow become more holistic in terms of our financial plan? You guys have a lot of financial advisors. Yeah. In the last, if you think of the last 20, 30, 40 years and the role the financial advisor plays, there's a lot of stock picking. If you think about it, right? The context was around being investment savvy. And you think about where technology has led us today, financial advisors' highest and best use in many cases is financial planning. Huge difference between those different things. Solving for college education, solving for retirement, solving for all the other sort of challenges that we face from a financial perspective. So I think in the next 10 years, you'll find generative AI and artificial intelligence be a great partner for a financial advisor to help individuals navigate what is oftentimes a very challenging field in terms of making actual decisions. People get paralysis on, is it the right decision? And again, technology will help us get to the goal line, but I think to get over the goal line, the role of the advisor, helping sort out the complexity, sorting out choices, but ultimately pushing individuals to be more deliberate and intentional about saving for retirement. And equally as important, how they're spending their money uh, from the planning perspective is important. A lot of people still do not have a financial plan. And it's one of the things that every single one of us, as we're going through high school, certainly by the time we get to college, for those who choose college, should have a very intentional plan around their financial affairs. And I and I say that broadly defined. Yeah, I agree with you. And the Problem is a lot of people get too far down the line or make the spending choices on the consumption part, not thinking about the saving and then the spend down part of it, which is a critical part of retirement. That's such a big part of the plan that a lot of people don't focus on. That's where a planner or an advisor 
really comes in handy. Like critical role for sure. Absolutely. So you're also a member of the business roundtable on those CEOs. What's top of mind among CEOs today? Obviously, we're going through a difficult time with the war in Israel right now, but just generally, what has been top of mind in that room? Yeah, so war in Israel, uh, a war in Ukraine, uh, high inflation that negatively impacts the most vulnerable portion of our population, gas prices on the rise again, interest rates being high, cost of mortgages being high, supply of housing down. I mean, there's just a long list of challenges. And this is where I think discipline really pays off. And if you think about Business Roundtable, which I think is an exceptional organization that advocates on behalf of business to both U.S. and foreign governments, it's trying to take as many points of friction out of the system. So, and I'll just start with regulation. To the extent we have clear regulation and tax policy that allows small to medium and large businesses making decisions around the deployment of capital, the investment in capital goods, building new manufacturing, clear-cut regulatory environment is important for all businesses. Second is, I just mentioned, tax regime, understanding under what tax regime are we going to operate in. To the extent that government can keep inflation lower within a relatively narrow band, and I mean all inflation, not the sort of core and non-core, real inflation, go to people walking down the street and ask them, do they have inflation in their life? They'll say yes. Again, it's one of those areas that uh, the BRT wants to make sure that government officials are aware of those uh, important topics. The other big one, of course, as we all know, is international trade. It's imperative that we have open lines of trade around the world. Make sure it's a level playing field for trade. We all witnessed through the pandemic how single points of failure on supply chains can be very inflationary and in some cases, products not even available at all. Those are probably some of the biggest lessons that we can learn coming out of uh, the pandemic and how we can do a better job ensuring that we don't create volatility for individuals. Well, we're also in this regime of higher interest rates for longer, it seems. Don't know how long that will last ultimately, but it does feel like things have really changed after the last 20 years or so. We went from kind of a zero interest rate policy to this. Now we have this kind of sticky high inflation, as you mentioned, not just core, but the things we actually pay for, shelter, food, and transportation. So in that type of an environment, how do you think people should be thinking about their money and how long they need it to last and how they can protect it and grow it over time? And of course, as you just pointed out, it's the delta between inflation and interest rates where you have to be most sensitive to because some people may be less informed, seeing a salary increase or their wealth uh, inflate also needs to recognize that cost of goods and services continues to go up and it's the delta in between. So I think what's imperative that we understand is that we have to drive those inflation rates back down. Interest rates actually for seniors can be actually very helpful. If you think about the actuarial tables that are used uh, in the pricing of annuity and lifetime income, higher rates and wider spreads actually can allow people to have more retirement income. Now, if it gets eaten up by inflation, that's more challenging. But for most people, to the extent they've done a good job saving, they can manage the inflation, higher interest rate for seniors or retirees, could turn out to be uh, coming at the right time. As you said at the beginning of this recording, that we've got 12,000 people a day. That's remarkable, right? 10 to 12,000 people a day retiring, setting themselves up for having to deal with the issues that we've been visiting about, which is inflation, 
interest rates and how to go about investing my money for long-term safety and while at the same time enjoying a, a, an appropriate return that exceeds that of inflation. Do you think that government and the Federal Reserve really have that much control over that given the fact that they can affect monetary policy and they can drive down inflation? It was at 9% plus a year ago. Can they keep it in a reasonable band or is the economy kind of out of whack right now? I think they can keep it in a reasonable band. And I think what people need to appreciate when you talk about an economy the size of the U.S., it's no easy task. We have very good policymakers doing the best job they possibly can steering it. It, it, But it is, as we looked out here on the west side, you got to turn the Queen Mary around in a relatively uh, small area, and it does take time. And sudden jerky movements generally are not helpful. I think uh, they've done a pretty good job messaging what their intentions are, and you've seen some significant reduction in inflation at this point in time. So can we get that next three to four uh, percent out of the, get down to three percent? And maybe we find out that in the end, three to four percent is tolerable. But I don't think we're going to know until we sort of go through the current cycle and see what uh, what it looks like on the other side. You're the president and CEO of a very big financial services company. You've been in this industry a long time. I'm sure you've had some influences along the way who've kind of helped steer you in your career. Can you think of one person who is the greatest influence for you professionally who helped you kind of set your own course as a CEO? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I've been so fortunate to have so many great bosses and and parents that care deeply. But I l- used to live with my grandparents. Uh, I lived uh, nine months of the year in Houston and three months of the year in a very small rural town in Iowa called Dow City. And we'd sleep in the cellar of the house because they wouldn't turn on the central air because of the expense of that. My my grandfather was a product of the Great Depression and saw just how tough it could be. So the idea of savings, the idea of frugality, the idea of using that land to make a living has been a part of my life. And it still is to this day. I understand the importance of a dollar that's earned and what hard work should look like. He used to have an expression, the good old days weren't always all that good. And he was an eternal optimist, but what he was talking about was pulling a plow with a team of horses and uh, at a single row at a time and just how challenging that was. And so when Farmall and John Deere came out with mechanized equipment, he just saw that as great technological breakthrough. And that's that's how I grew up. And that's that's still in my DNA today. Do you think of one frugal habit you still have that you just can't shake all these years later? Well, I can tell you that I was in Houston over the weekend uh, seeing family for a, for a family uh, wedding. And when I got home at five o'clock, I jumped on the mower and, and mowed the acre lot. We still maintain our, all of our own property there in uh, Des Moines. And it's I get teased a lot from a lot of my contemporaries, but I actually enjoy doing it. And it's one of those things we still can do. And it's uh, something I'll probably never uh, quit doing until I can. I love that. Well, Dan, you know, Investopedia is a site built on our investing terms and our dictionary. I'm sure through your career in the industry, you've got a few of your favorite financial or investing terms. I'd love to know Dan Housen's favorite investing or financial term. Yeah. So, I, you know, to me, it's, it's compound interest. I know that's two words, uh, but compounding interest, people underestimate the value of compounding interest and doing that sooner rather than later. I actually did an experiment with my 10-year-old grandson now, and I, I gave him a, a, a job to do. And the job was to take a stack of bills. And I said, I wanted him to take that set of $1 bills and every seven days 
to put the next dollar bill down, to double it. And of course, it was going to be seven years. You would double your money every seven years. And I'd given him $100. He has that as we speak. And I asked him to tell me to do the math of determining when he would have doubled that stack of money. And it's so significant. And he'll be equally surprised when he sees the answer at the end of the test. Yeah, we love that term. And there's a reason Einstein called it the ninth wonder of yeah, the world, because it, it is magic. It is what produces that wealth and that doubling of your money over time. Dan Houston, the president and CEO of the Principal Financial Group, thanks so much for being on The Express. We appreciate that. Caleb, it was an absolute honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Investopedia does an amazing job informing its listeners and, and those people at your website, truly understanding how important it is uh, to understand what financial well-being can be and should look like, and your contribution is significant. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Alexa Valentina, who hit us up on the gram suggesting operating leverage this week. We love that term, especially around earnings season, because it gives us a pretty good picture of how companies are able to adjust their operations and their balance sheets to meet fluctuations in revenue. How nimble are they? According to Alexa and my favorite website, Operating leverage is used to calculate a company's break-even point and help set appropriate selling prices to cover all costs and generate a profit. Companies with high operating leverage must cover a larger amount of fixed costs each month, regardless of whether they sell any units of product. Low operating leverage companies may have high costs that vary directly with their sales, but have lower fixed costs to cover each month. The higher the degree of operating leverage, the greater the potential danger from forecasting risk, in which a relatively small error in forecasting sales can be magnified into larger errors in cash flow projections. Great suggestion, Alexa. Look for companies that have great operating leverage because they'll be best positioned to weather the economic storms. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and special thanks to Dan Houston from The Principal Group for hopping on The Express. The Principal's been around since 1879, so they know a thing or two about money and retirement. Keep your eyes on the tracks this week and keep a close eye on those yields, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.